introduction. I suppose it's good to do some no, sort of introduction. Just say like, just say like, you know. Hello, I'm okay. Tim. Go again. Hello, I'm Tim. I'm James. We're physicists. Uh, yep. Sort of. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, at least I used to be, anyway. You are still a physicist, James. You're absolutely. You're always, always be a physicist. Is it? It's you're like... you're just one of those physicists who now you know determines how to make chemical weapons. So um, it's like a club that I can't leave. Is what you're trying to tell me? Yes, and under pain of death, uh, the secrets that you learned. Because we all know that as soon as you get a physics degree, you gain access to eldritch esoteric knowledge, and that's why you will forever be qualified to comment on everything. Fantastic. Wow. Uh, so, yes, uh, last week, when did this come out? 31st of August. So it's, it's actually a couple of weeks old now, although I, I came across it uh, last week. Um, oh, sorry, received 31st of August, published 14th. So yeah, two, um, just uh, under two weeks ago. Um, probably one of the most uh, anticipated breakthroughs in condensed matter physics. Do you think that's fair to say? Uh, yeah, and physics generally. I mean, I would argue that... I mean, okay, we'll get, we'll get into this in a minute, but, you know, this is still, as always, a caveat. You know, of course, caveat. and we'll talk um, about exactly what the caveat yeah. is. But yeah, I mean, in terms of what it's achieved, it's it's pretty wild. It's um, extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. You know, it's. I don't know how, about you, James, but for me, it's it's relatively rare these days that I see, you know, a very highly publicized paper that I look at and I sort of think, yeah, you know, that is extraordinary work and and that's really amazingly done. There's there's a lot of things where something gets report something gets picked up in in. Uh, public discourse and as a physicist you're sort of sitting on the sidelines going yeah well mm, that's not quite what you said it was and actually you know those in the know are, are really looking at this thing but this is you're being a bit too generous there i mean most <laughs> of the time i'm rolling my eyes such they are actually looking into the back of my head yeah i'm trying not trying not to be <laughs> too angry but yes you're yeah. very right but this is a case where it's pretty hard to have reservations about it you know superconductivity yeah. is very much a binary phenomenon something either is superconducting or isn't it's pretty easy to tell if something is superconducting or not yeah. and, and it's it's, uh, it's it's of of the uh, uh, sort of modern physics effect um, it's probably the most dramatic really um, you know, indeed uh, everybody who's uh, got an, even, uh, an interest in physics has seen the you know um, quantum levitation as it's known uh or you know uh it's 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 uh it's a major thing and of course you know it's uh one of the most dramatic uses of uh modern quantum like emergent quantum theory um in things like medical imaging for example with mris yeah indeed um, and uh, and i get... i mean you you point out the quantum levitation uh which um is probably one of the most widespread demonstrations of superconductivity and as well at a i mean it looks impressive because you have a disc that is floating and 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 it's a, a true levitation not not like um more sort of uh I, I hesitate to call it standard maglev but but it sort of is where you just have two um high field magnets and and you put them in opposition and they obviously repel each other Whereas quantum levitation is 
is true levitation. You could hang the thing upside down or, you know, move it around in space and, and your disc will remain in place. It is locked well, in place. Rel- well, it's locked in place relative to the, the, the local field density. It can still move yeah. around as long as the field well, is continuous. That's why levitation is really a bit of a misnomer in that regard. I mean, it's, yeah, it's flux locking, really. Yeah, indeed. Um, but we're not talking about flux locking and i i don't want to get into trying to explain what an avacrossal vortex is so um but we probably should uh briefly outline what superconductivity is i think uh it's widespread enough that most people understand that superconductivity refers to materials with effectively zero resistance but to a physicist it means a lot more than that uh yeah that's right um it's uh it's uh, uh a manifestation of of fundamental nature of certain types of particles um specifically bosons um in that uh bosons unlike fermions um can occupy the same quantum state as each other um which allows them to under certain circumstances all occupy the same a ground state of the system uh, and when this happens yeah you get all sorts of uh, interesting physical behavior such as you know uh, zero resistivity um and uh and uh yeah the existence of this flux locking uh, mm-hmm. as described before so yeah indeed electrons in uh in metals for example are, are fermions they're spin half particles so they obey fermi dirac statistics and uh while you know there are lots of different details about the physical origin of different um, effects regarding electron motion, you could, in a very sort of sweeping statement, say that the fact that metals have things like resistivity, scattering, um, finite conductivity is a result of the fact that electrons obey Fermi Dirac statistics. Exactly. In a superconductor, so so in um, some of the first superconductors to ever be measured in things like mercury or niobium. Um, what happens is as you uh, cool the system down, you um, have pairing of electrons together in um, anti-parallel spin pairs uh, known as mm. Cooper pairs. The pairing force comes from uh, distortions of the lattice, the, the atom atomic lattice in which those electrons move. It's, yeah. it's it's essentially a, a product of um, of uh, Coulomb forces. Really, it's, it's it's not much more complicated than that. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, as... sort of. I, sorry, I'll just interject. No, yeah, go for it. Yep. The sort of um, the the fun, although, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fair description. Uh, effectively, it's phonon mediated, right? The idea that um, in BCS, have, yeah, 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 that's right. You have the which we well we talked about this previously, but uh, we. But Barding Cooper Schrieffer, sorry. Barding, BCS. Yeah, BCS. Um, so the uh, the anti uh, uh, parallel electrons um, are the exchange particle in the language of um, particle physics uh, is this phonon, which is just a particle representation of a lattice vibration mm-hmm. uh, in the material. Yeah, and that pairing then means that these pair these pairs of electrons can then behave as bosons even though they are individually fermions and then they can obey Bose-Einstein's uh, statistics and uh, you can as you were saying have these zero resistance states and they you know sort of have a common wave function mm. um 
and that that's sort of on a very basic level the origin of superconductivity the the thing is that that pairing force uh is relatively weak and uh when you have the disorder and the vibrations in a solid lattice that come from finite temperature they have a tendency to cause thermal scattering uh and to break these pairs apart so the materials that do superconduct um which is most metals really superconduct mm -hmm. um only do so at very very low temperatures and yeah how low is very low well uh niobium for example which is the one i've worked with primarily the highest critical temperature you get out of it i think is about 9.2 kelvin so that's, that's that that's about nine kelvin. nine degrees above absolute zero or yeah. what would that be minus 264 degrees celsius mm, mm. so really very low temperatures the kind of temp temperatures you can only reach with liquid helium which is a big problem because liquid helium is incredibly expensive uh, and it's also a non-renewable resource which is something mm. that's often forgotten so really um while superconductors were fantastic um as a discovery that confirmed a lot of theory about how particles behaved um, and a lot of theory about uh, quantum mechanics in the solid state mm. they didn't really have any well they had they do have practical applications they just have limited practical applications so for example i use a super for, for almost every day of my research career i've used a superconducting magnet which is a massive coil of superconducting wire suspended in a vat of liquid helium yeah. But if you're trying to make um, power lines that are going to bring power to your home, you can't have every power line encased in liquid helium. Yeah, because well, it would that... be more; it would require more helium than exists on the planet to do that for a start, and it would also cost basically the entire GDP of the world. <laughs> so yeah, you're uh, you're effectively um, using more energy than uh, than you can reasonably. Uh produce just to uh maintain the system of transmission yeah uh, indeed um so room temperature superconductivity has been something that's been sought for a long time theoretically there's absolutely no reason why room temperature superconductivity couldn't exist using the models that we have there's no fundamental reason it can't exist it's just a matter of trying to find something where the electron density and the coupling between electrons is strong enough to overcome thermal disorder yes yes that's a fairly uh, yeah. concise summary of the situation and there have been a lot of high temperature superconductors in the solid state a lot of them are very exotic materials um like well, this the... is one thing i wanted to touch on is yeah. that uh, you know this material this new uh, this new discovery uh purports to um achieve the superconducting state at around 15 degrees centigrade which mm -hmm. of course is a uh, you know Slightly cool room temperature, but uh, yeah. nonetheless uh, achievable. Uh, whereas, um, uh, yeah, I mean, like prior to that, what was the highest temperature superconductor? Uh, it was probably the iron pnictides, which I think you, I think the highest was 198 Kelvin. Mm. So that's still very high. Uh, you can still mm. get there with liquid nitrogen, but, but it's still a uh... it's still a cry. You still have to use a cryogen to get. Well, this is the pro this is the this is the problem with uh, you know anything that's 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 even slightly below freezing is just problematic in mm. terms of the energy consumption for long term um, 
Yeah, it's interesting. It is interesting, though. So in terms of transmitting power on a large scale, that's absolutely true. But recently for a a talk I was doing, I I did a calculation which I discussed with um, a colleague of mine uh, about the use of superconductors in data centers. Mm. So um, by current estimates, about um, between 45 and 60 percent of the energy used by the big server farms that pe- you know companies like Google and Amazon is use wasted on heat is wasted as heat exa- uh, exactly and uh, has to be extracted and um this colleague of mine who works on superconducting uh, spintronics which uh we won't get into now but it's basically you know trying to make um computers using superconductors um made the argument that because data centers are so centralized it it would actually be economically beneficial to run a data center using conventional well not conventional uh, high temperature superconductors things like panictides and well, um, i would argue that that's that's very much a similar case to uh, use case in terms of uh, sort of energy costs um, and thermodynamics as uh, an mri machine right like an mri machine is expensive to run, um, but fundamentally, uh, uh, you know, it's it's a contained system that's, mm. that that you can reasonably insulate in the same way as a data center. You could reasonably insulate a data center and yeah. minimize the energy required to keep it at the Christ that temperature is required. Whereas, you know, um, a long range, I don't know, uh, national grid system, it's just fundamentally a different different problem, right? It is, yeah. But um, I, I was quite pleased when I did the calculation. Let me see if I can find it somewhere. Uh, yeah, here it is. So uh, this is obviously back of the envelope, but I, I worked out that based on the current cost per litre of liquid nitrogen um, from a liquefier and maintaining a temperature of 100 Kelvin, you could potentially go quite a bit higher than that. There are approximately 18 million servers in worldwide data centers, um, and they consume, or at least they will by 2025, they'll consume about 3,000 terawatt hours per year just in cooling. So if you were to use liquid nitrogen to cool all of those servers and use superconducting lossless circuits, you would actually save four hundred and seventy million dollars per day in energy bills. That's a lot of uh, it's a lot of bills that, right there. That is a lot of bills. So yeah, um, that's not to take away from the importance of this discovery, but just pointing out that the economics of data centers are kind of messed up. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's something that uh, yes, the economics of large. Uh, uh, computer companies are uh, often a bit skew if indeed but um yeah so in this case um they didn't use a, a panictide alloy or um uh, a perovskite superconductor or, or any of the other bizarre uh, alloys no. uh, although those are all very useful in their own different ways they used hydrogen so it's been theorized for for a long time that um so so hydrogen is should behave as a metal in in a solid um the 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 properties of having just you know one uh 
electron in its its only an outer orbit means that it, it should be metallic if you can compress it enough. Well, um, I mean, it's theorized that the core of Jupiter is metallic hydrogen, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, people have done calculations to see if metallic hydrogen would be superconducting, and uh, it yes, it sh it should be superconducting. Um, and there have been experiments to try to put hydrogen under enough pressure to uh, transform it into a hypercritical solid and see if it's superconducting. But And those have been successful, but they've generally found that the transition temperature is not that far above um, some of the high-temperature superconductors, and it requires immensely high pressure to maintain the supercritical solid state. The difference in this paper is that they doped their hydrogen gas mixture with hydrogen sulfide and with methane. That is, um, I like how this is all just rather elemental uh, compounds. Exactly. You know? It's all Carbon, hydrogen, sulfur. It's all very easily obtainable materials. And that's one of the really good things about it, because a lot of these very complex superconducting alloys that are used for high temperature superconductivity contain a lot of really, really nasty stuff. Mm. Um, there's a there was a famous case where um, one of the precursor compounds that was used in the, I, I think it was the preparation of uh, IBCO, uh, so yttrium, barium, uh, what's the C? Calcium oxide. Yeah. Um, one of the precursors in the preparation of IBCO was officially classed as a chemical weapon. Yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah, and and there there was famously a clear out of uh one of the when a professor retired, I think in the in the Cavendish lab, they had a clear out of his labs and found several massive jars of this chemical weapon that were hidden at the back of a cupboard, and they had to like get the get the army to shut off the lab and decontaminate wow. the area. So you know yeah. the these things show some interesting properties but they're not well, stuff that you want to be manufacturing on a large scale <laughs> i think also on a wider sort of uh, uh sort of geopolitical angle um a lot of these uh, exotic uh materials come from sources that are uh should we say um contentious from a human rights perspective um, indeed and, yeah uh, and therefore you know something of this importance uh, and significance being achievable using things that are just ubiquitous yeah. Um, is uh, is great. Um, and one of the things that's been learned over the past century is that even when a material is not necessarily currently um, a critical or a conflict material, uh, once it becomes valuable, it will very swiftly take on that status. That's what's happened to both tantalum and cobalt in the last fifty years. Yes. Um, but the thing you is, know about cobalt mines. Yes. Yeah. That's. Mm. But yeah, all of the materials here could be easily produced by anybody. There's there's absolutely nothing limiting the supply of these at all, which is fantastic. Mm. And yeah, so it's by taking this gaseous mixture, they then compressed it in a diamond anvil cell, which um, is something that that I always have Sounds a very cool. clear vision in my mind of what it is, and it's it's really not that at all. Basically, the point is that in order to compress something to these kinds of incredible pressures, I think they have a picture of their cell in here somewhere. Um, 
Maybe it's in the supplementary information. Mm. In order to compress it to the pressures required to start to form solid hydrogen, maybe they don't, you need to uh, apply a, a very high pressure. And um, in order to do that, you need a material that can withstand that pressure. Now, using something like steel or uh, even something you know, very, uh, very hard, like tungsten, uh, it's not going to withstand the kind of pressures we're talking about here. So the, the critical pressure for this gaseous mixture um, was 220 gigapascals. So I wanted to just dip into this number because yep. it's not really a number that you can really get your head around in any meaningful way. That's not easily. Like, it's, it's a lot of pressure. So, yep. I mean, I confess I haven't... Uh, I probably should have spent time to do some back of the envelope calculation for some comparisons. Well, one one atmosphere is one hundred and one kilopascals. Right. So this is uh, a million, two million times bigger than yeah. so two uh, approximately two million atmospheres. So this is roughly the pressure that you would expect to get in the inner mantle. Um, yeah. That's, so uh, not not quite the core of the Earth, but the the inner mantle. So I guess the question really that 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 stems from all of this, um, I believe, because it's it's an amazing discovery. But ultimately, as I said at the beginning, there is a caveat, and the caveat is what you've just described, which yeah. is that you know we need to maintain this absurdly high pressure in order to achieve it. So you can't really start manufacturing no. lossless uh, lossless cables uh, to be sold at Amazon. Um, what so you know what what needs to be done potentially? to uh, to solve this issue I, uh, either engineering um because i mean when i first saw this i was like oh i was wondering whether you could like develop a um like i don't know a diamond some... pressure tube or something yeah something yeah. like that um to, to to maintain the pressure because because you know you wouldn't need it to be uh uh of a particular like the cross-sectional area of your superconducting cable to be large um you know it's uh, uh and so you mm -hmm. know it's not it's not completely outside our own possibility but well then... that, that is a good point because one of the things to bear in mind about um a potential future switch to fully superconducting infrastructure is that all in terms of design all bets are off like yeah you you can uh tackle um very 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 high currents without the kind of um you know like like you said, you know, you can have a very narrow cross-section wire and it can potentially carry a very high current density. I mean, superconducting materials have critical current densities beyond which they break down just because of the, the, the pressure between Cooper pairs. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you're not limited by the same things that you're limited by in conventional electronics. No. Um, but yes, it's still not realistic to expect to be able to have wires crisscrossing the country that are held at 200 gigapascals. No, so then th that begs the question, what else can be done? And I mean, obviously, the first thing that jumps to mind is some kind of like advanced doping regime beyond what already is currently uh, 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 shown. So, I think that's you know. the critical point. So, you know, the, the classic thing that's brought up, I remember it was brought up with many of you know, my 
publications that got any public attention was there were always various people who said oh well you know this only works under special circumstances so it's not really useful at all is it and the thing is that's not how physics works you know we, we don't just say oh yes in one stroke we've solved every possible problem what what this demonstrates is that it's possible to use compressed hydrogen to to get room temperature superconductivity under some circumstances and as with you know the original discovery of superconductivity in mercury that was only possible um what's the tc of mercury it's uh, it, it's below 4 <laughs> kelvin i think it's, um, it's yeah, yeah so that was only possible very close to absolute zero uh, and there were people who said oh well that's interesting but it's useless but the point mm. is that there was nothing fundamental in the theory of superconductivity which took a long time to formulate because the discovery was like 1925 and the barding cooper schrieffer theory was formulated in the 60s but yeah. um there was nothing fundamental saying that it couldn't work at room temperature and it's similar with this Yes, this experiment worked at 220 gigapascals, but there's nothing to say that this couldn't potentially be done at megapascals if you find the right doping regime and the right mixture of materials. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, uh, there are points in this paper later on that talk about how you could use different organic precursor molecules to dope this mixture to reduce the critical pressure. And mm. they're not talking about reducing it by many orders of magnitude, not yet. But that is quite an important point, that by playing with the gas mixture, you could reduce the critical pressure. Mm. We hope. Yeah. And, you know, when... You don't need to reduce it to atmosphere. You can still have a system that's under pressure, uh, that produces this effect. It just needs to be a pressure where uh, you can you can maintain that pressure with readily available materials like steel rather than yeah. diamond. Yes, although yeah, grown diamond is pretty common these days, isn't it? It is um, just not in the kind of quantities that you'd need for large scale infrastructure. I don't know. Maybe you're right. I don't know much about how diamond is grown, to be honest. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's basically... Isn't it grown on an industrial scale already? Yeah, like oh, yeah, it's, like, it's grown uh, on an industrial scale. It's just that mm. you're growing amounts that are like, you know, to tip uh, tip saw blades, not to construct hundreds of kilometers of cable. Yeah, maybe um, maybe yeah. The, uh, the fabled carbon nanotube will come to our rescue. Uh, in on a... Mm. On a, on a, on a horse made of buckyballs well i'm sure that the instant this paper was published someone working on graphene claimed that they could do the same thing well i mean graphene is is i mean i personally make sure that i put some graphene in my morning coffee every day because i know that it extends my life by up to 20 to 30 years you joke but people literally do that with c60 uh yeah i'm aware yeah. Anyway, C60 is um, carcinogenic. People stop eating it. I don't know why you're eating it. I've worked with it for te for like ten years. <laughs> it is not good for you. Stop eating it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that generally um, is a good uh, strategy. Don't yeah. eat. 
uh, complex carbon molecules. Although, actually, most of the food we eat is complex carbon molecules, so don't take that advice. Either. Yeah, I mean, it's complex hydrocarbon. I mean, the, the, the problem is when whenever you consume something that can uh, interrupt RNA sequencing, right? You know, th yeah. this is why you can you can have an aromatic molecule that has a benzene ring in it, and it's not going to give you cancer. But if you were to breathe in benzene, that is highly carcinogenic because yeah. it's unterminated. I found I find it so crazy that you can. Sorry, this is a bit of a, uh, a red herring, but that that steric hindrance can cause cancer. The idea that it's not, you know, when you think about cancer, you think about some complicated biochemical reaction that causes a, 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 a gene transcription to mess up, but actually, it's just like it gets in the rungs of the DNA and then it doesn't copy right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just it's like just... some. It's just like someone sort of sticking a piece of straw in the zip. And it just suddenly Lit breaks. Sort of, you know, <laughs> a, a spanner in the works. Uh, Quite literally, in the proverbial yeah. sense. Um, yeah, that is why. Uh, yeah. That is why benzene is bad, and that is also why toluene is bad. Which, um, yeah. yeah, it's much more important for me because I've been around that stuff way too much. Um, but yeah, as when it comes to uh, proving this, or you know, one of the reasons why this is such a fantastic paper is because proving something is superconducting is is super easy this is the graph here figure 1a that shows you the superconducting transition and and it is it very much does what it says on the tin you have uh, a um, finite resistance that varies um this variation where you see it decreases as, as a function of temperature that's typical of metallic behavior i don't know what's going on here with this little bump that's very interesting some sort yeah. of phase transition happening there but then, yeah, at the critical temperature, it just drops straight to zero and stays there. Yep. And and that's one of the wonderful things about superconductivity. You know, mm. it's obvious when it's there. So, yeah, uh, yeah and and um, clearly from the the color coding here, it doesn't always work the same way. And little small variations in mixture uh, or preparation can have quite a profound effect, which is a positive thing. Well, yeah, because it, it, it shows you that the it's very sensitive to the doping conditions, mm. um, indeed. Mm. I wonder if... Uh, hmm, topological superconductors... Imagine, imagine if we could get a room temperature topological superconductor. That would be wild. That would be quite fantastic. I mean, it is something that's worth thinking about. If you can show that, you know, relatively simple superconductivity can exist at room temperature... Due to this, you know, the pressure here is it's not a magic trick. The pressure is just pushing the hydrogen atoms close close enough together that their electrons um are dense yeah. enough that they can form this special state. If you can force electrons to bind together through another means, mm. like, you know, existing in a topological system where, you know, they they have um I don't know, how how I mean, this is, you know so much more about topological superconductivity than me. What what's the the sort of binding energy in a topological superconductor? Oh goodness gracious, Tim! It's been uh, it's been a couple of years. I couldn't read it off the top of my head. I'm afraid. Oh no problem. No, that's okay. Um, Ask you a question and put you on the spot. Yeah, but I um, mean, the the point is that you can get electrons to strongly interact through means other than just forcing them close together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, there's. Uh, there's all sorts of fun mechanisms. I mean, the fundamental theory of superconductivity is is 
you know, is blind really um, to the uh, to the underlying mechanism through which um, through which it occurs. Really, mm. um, it's, uh... so I guess one of the one of the really interesting things to discuss is say that this develops further and they do find a way of dramatically reducing the critical pressure. Um, how would the world change if room temperature superconductivity was the norm goodness i mean are we talking a scalable cheap room temperature superconductor yeah if if room temperature superconductors were as easy to create as uh you know the the high voltage cabling that we have now you know you could you could replace every pylon in the country at cost with something that was superconducting well i mean the first obvious thing is that energy costs would go down dramatically well in a in a sane world where you know the, hmm. the, the, uh, increases in uh, productivity and efficiency were passed down to uh, to uh, in reduced costs in the consumer but yeah, assuming that that happens yeah a, uh, a cheaper cheaper energy yeah um, because you're just less energy is being lost uh, in the transmission. Um, you know, we have a high voltage national grid to overcome the problems of uh, long distance uh, power transmission, but even that, um, you know, as good as the system is currently, um, leads to significant uh, yeah. energy loss. Um, I mean, I don't know what the figures are actually. I mean, you might know better than I do. Um, no, I don't I don't actually know exactly what the energy loss is on the national grid because it's in you know in ironically in in a computer it's relatively easy to calculate. I'd have no idea how to even go about calculating loss in such a large system. Well, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a lot. Um and then of course uh perhaps some of the more uh profound um changes or or, or actions would be long-term energy storage indeed so yeah there's some really interesting stuff that you can do with superconductors that wouldn't work in any other type of material one of the things uh that you can do with a superconductor is you can indefinitely store magnetic flux which is crazy so this this is actually a massive problem with the kind of superconducting magnets that i work with is that you uh you have a a normally conducting circuit that you use to drive a voltage across your superconducting coil and um, you do that basically by heating up a small part of the superconductor so that it goes super critical and you use that to drive a voltage because you you can't drive a voltage across the superconductor that that has a a, um, it doesn't have a well-defined relationship between voltage and current so you have to drive part of it to go normal before you can do that and then you drive this current round and you generate, you know, a nine Tesla magnetic field. And then because you don't want to waste energy, you turn off the heater circuit and that nine Tesla field will just stay there. Which is almost magic. It, I mean, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it, uh, is, it really it is, is extraordinary. I mean, and, but the problem the problem for engineering these systems is then if you reconnect your normal circuit to the superconducting circuit without matching the voltage the whole thing will just explode yeah because there's so much energy stored in the magnet it will just shake itself to bits so yeah yeah. don't tell that to people who are about to go in an mri machine because uh you know it's fine i'm sure 
the, don't worry uh, about it. Like, like the, the, the knock-on implications, that sounds all very well and good, but like the knock-on implications of uh, having such an energy storage uh, uh, are huge. Yeah, it's I so, mean, it's so one efficient. Of major, it's one so... of the major problems at the moment with renewable energy sources is that we can't like effectively, I mean, there are some techniques for doing it, but you can't really effectively store no. energy. So, you know, when it's, when the wind is blowing and our wind farms are generating electricity, that's great. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the country can use this on demand, uh, this, um, this, uh, this, this energy generated from uh, wind. Yeah. Power. Well, this happened recently, uh, right? You know, we had, we had the warning but, in, in the UK where we were told that there would be power shortages because of unusually low wind speeds. In a world yeah. where you could store energy uh, losslessly over indefinite timescales in a massive bank of superconducting coils, that wouldn't be a problem. Exactly. You, you can you can run an energy uh, energy profit nine months out of the year, and then just use your backup supply when you're running low, and and there would be no problem. I mean, we could effectively shut down all fossil fuel plants straight away. Well, we already I mean, we already can. I know, but I'm saying that even more quickly and efficiently. Yeah. Uh, it um yeah, so that that would be pretty wild. I mean, then of course, you know, there's the uh the potential for um as you said before, uh, already we can theoretically build uh computers using superconducting circuits. Mm -hmm. Um but if they were room temperature, I mean, that means I could have one in my house. Um, you know, um, potentially much, much faster. Yep. Would it and actually for, faster computers? Not really. It wouldn't be faster. Oh. What it would be is immensely cheaper to run. And you could also, you could also, you could run it faster, actually. There would be no inherent increase in flop rate. But mm. the thing is that one of the big limitations on how fast you can run a CPU at the moment is that you have to be able to cool it. You know, yeah. that's why people spend thousands and thousands of pounds installing water and nitrogen cooling systems into their home computers so they can overclock their CPUs. Uh, yeah. Whereas if it's a superconducting CPU, you don't have to worry about that. Because mm. I mean, you do still, you do have to still worry about it. A, a superconductor, there are so many ways in which a superconducting circuit will still generate heat because you have injection losses and you have... Um, you know, a superconductor is, is never perfectly uniform, so you'll have regions that will be going normal at, you know, boundaries, uh, structural yeah. boundaries in the material. There, there are loads of reasons that will generate heat. But the point is that the, the generation of heat will be significantly reduced. And in a commercial, sorry, in a domestic computer, the heat loss is even worse than in a centralized server. Uh, for for a commercially available CPU, the heat loss is around seventy percent mm. of of the uh, power wow. consumption. Yeah, I so, guess uh, yeah. Uh, another perhaps more speculative uh, potential um, uh, implication of, of of widespread ubiquitous room temperature superconductors is um, uh, they could be leveraged by a and I realize I'm. Uh, uh, talking about something that perhaps I'm, you know, a little more uh, biased towards, but um, <laughs> uh, uh, a, a, a topological quantum computer. Because really, I mean, the major problem with topological quantum computing, and I realize uh, that's quite a mouthful, and a lot of people perhaps uh, uh, 
will find difficulty knowing what I'm talking about. Uh, perhaps we can do talk an about, episode. Talk about mugs uh, and donuts, and then they'll just implement. Yeah, lots of mugs and donuts. But but, but broadly speaking, it's um, it's just a one approach to top, uh, to quantum computing, which is in and of itself another whole topic. But you could like the major problem is is quantum memory. Like you can have a kind of fancy topological computer that does all of the you know, interesting stuff, the calculation side of things that can be relatively complex. Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking, I'm not talking about home computers here, but more like, you yeah. know, for research purposes. Um, but the major issue is long-term quantum information storage. And if you could have a room temperature superconductor um, that was easily fabricatable, like even through like, you know, in, in sort of standard lithographic techniques, um, that would be ideal really. Um, yeah. Then you could design uh, a, a way or a device which can store quantum states indefinitely, cheaply, um, which is 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 would yeah. be you know an amazing lever le leg up as yes, so like leverage, uh, uh, which uh, which a, a potential topological quantum computer, which itself would perhaps be a bit more uh, complex, uh, yeah. could use. So, you know, that would be interesting. Having both quant quantum processing and quantum memory in a single system. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, you kind of have to have... Uh, you have to be able to memory. store your qubits. That's somehow. exactly right. Um, and, um, you know, it's really one of the major, the major problem with quantum computing at the moment is yeah. decoherence. Um, you know, in fact, I think the uh, current functioning in inverted commas quantum computers i mean you know they've only got well they're getting better but um even the, the ones that are nominally quantum computers even though they're not universal um are um uh have a superconducting qubit arrays as their memory uh, it's just that they're wildly expensive and complicated because yeah. of course you have to keep everything in near you know zero kelvin uh, yeah one of the other sort of structural implications that I can definitely see happening is that this would enable you to have much more centralized power production. Because you 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 have no requirement. If you if you can cheaply manufacture manufacture lossless uh transport of power, there's no reason to have to to localize uh, energy production at all. You know, someone in yeah. the north of England could be using uh you know could, could be using power that's generated in the sahara from some yeah. sort of massive solar power plant and there'd, there'd be no problem with that because you have no loss yeah. well it's funny because since you, when you said that I, I then imagined myself uh in my doomsday prepper patch of land up in the outer hebrides loading a superconducting like shunt on the back of my truck which has been <laughs> charged up and driving out onto this this crop of land to to plug in my uh my 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 you know hovel that's uh on this windswept you just drag uh, your, your diamond cable out behind you yeah um <laughs> yeah and you know and it powers my hut for the next uh 500 years yeah that'd be good and i mean with that come a lot of other infrastructure gains i mean uh it would be revolutionary for transport uh so maglev at the moment is you know maglev trains exist uh, across the world, most famously in Japan. But a holy grail of maglev is superconducting maglev um, because uh, you don't have to have these massive 
magnetic arrays or you know induction circuits that are loaded into the train you you just have uh, an array of magnets and then a, a little superconducting coil sitting inside the train um yeah. and then you have completely friction frictionless transport and it, it doesn't even re- require any fancy engineering to keep it in line or anything because you yeah. can just use the gradient of the field to keep it in line um yeah and you could potentially if you have something um you know, if you, if you if you can make a, a steel tracks that have a high enough um, field density, you could just use that. You don't even need very fancy magnetic materials. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you, you'd suddenly have access to much better transport. Um, I think also potentially this could be hugely revolutionary for um, air travel because um, one of the big so that there have been attempts to make fully electric uh, commercial planes um, and you can make uh, an electric motor that is um, good enough to power a, you know, an Airbus uh, size plane, but it's very short range because getting a battery onto that plane that's big enough to power those electric motors for any length of time is bloody impossible. Yeah, well, I guess it ultimately it's just about energy density, isn't it? Yeah. More than anything, like it's the ability to store vast amounts of energy in a very, very small space. Yeah, exactly. And with a superconducting coil that you've you know primed uh, with some gigantic magnetic field density, that is uh, absolutely possible. How you'd manage the stray field. magnetic field is another question <laughs> but but yeah. you know there are ways of handling a stray magnetic field you can wrap the whole thing in new metal or something mm-hmm. uh and and that will keep out that will uh screen some of the magnetic flux but mm-hmm. um yeah i mean it, it it would you it you're very unlikely to to be able to have one of these superconducting coils in your home but it's something uh you know, on on a large scale that could revolutionize energy storage. Mm. And the other thing as well is that there's really no limits to how quickly you can extract the energy from a coil like that. You know, with a battery, um, there there is a fundamental limit to the current uh, density that you can get out of a out of a, an ion battery. Whereas with a superconducting coil, there really is no limit. the The limit is is the only limit is the uh, critical current of the coil itself. Mm. which can be incredibly high so uh yeah if, if you want to run a, a a gigantic airplane prop for 10 hours um that's fine you can do that if you want to run a um you know an arc furnace for 10 minutes you can do that as well and the same battery could power both of those systems yeah sounds pretty good tim yep Sounds pretty good. Yep. I'm um, thinking of moving to the center of Jupiter as we speak. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, we could get around all of these technological issues by moving to Jupiter. Yeah. So I guess the, one of the questions for this outside of technology is, are there areas of Jupiter, Jupiter's core that are superconducting? Well, isn't that sort of thought to be the case I, I i've heard that theorized before but i don't because know if... as soon as people were like oh hydrogen's uh superconducting uh so therefore the core must be superconducting but i guess it's the temperature though isn't it like previously uh prior to this um 
like pure metallic hydrogen has a TC of what? Like you said, it was around, it was low anyway. Yeah, it was, um, I think it was above 100 Kelvin. Um, is, it, is pure hydrogen superconducting? I don't know. I'm going to look. I'm going to, I'm going to check. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine the core of computer is pure. Or maybe it is. Well, the thing is that, you know, th this this study used uh, various organic precursor molecules to increase the TC. And the atmosphere of gas giants have many of these organic precursors in them. So, oh, that's true, actually. So maybe yeah. it is interesting. Um, it could could easily be. Let's let's see. Although, yeah, actually, how that's a bit just I don't, without. Yeah, I don't want to get in too into it because we're coming towards the end of the uh, yeah. the show. But um, how? What is the difference between the T uh, the, the the TP and uh, and uh, the the PC the PC solid the solid, uh, solid liquid transition? Uh, good question. So I'm sure somewhere. Yes, here we are. So uh, figure two A, they measured at a couple of different pressures. And between, so they measured at the lowest, the lowest they did was 166 gigapascals and the TC was about 172 Kelvin. Huh. So even uh, halving, that's still even solid. halving the pressure. Yeah, it's still solid. It's still above what? the solid transition. I just wonder what oh, is what the solid the, transition? Oh, what's mm -hmm. the solid transition for hydrogen? Good yeah. question. I don't think that will be in this paper because they're, using this gas mixture. Mm. Let's um, see if I can find a phase diagram of hydrogen. Phase diagram, yeah, okay. Oh, it's in Russian. Of course it is. Uh, here we are. Uh, All the best stuff is. Solid hydrogen is in, in this region here. Uh, and metallic liquid hydrogen and solid hydrogen have to be both high pressure and hot for that to happen. Mm. So we are in, in, in this study, we're in this region here. Mm. And I'm guessing that the dopant completely transforms this phase boundary, pushing this up. This I can't see your sorry. Oh, okay. The spike where it says uh, four there. The spike okay, next to that presumably is being pushed up closer to uh, yeah. high temperature. So this the solid hydrogen line and this three phase are being pushed mm. closer together very interesting indeed well i for one look forward to free energy um yep. uh, ultra fast quantum computers i think um, if there's one thing that we can definitely say james it's that n definitely no one is going to take advantage of this no. and abuse it definitely. everyone is fundamentally good tim of course of course um cool nice yeah superconducting hydrogen it's um it's really cool it is well it, uh, well actually it's not that cool that's sort of the point but uh yeah cool we can yeah that's it that's it. it thank so. you yeah